0: So for 14 months, the uh, Getty Museum uh, carefully researched the authenticity of a statue that they wanted to buy for their collection, an ancient Greek statue. Uh, they brought in all kinds of experts. A geologist came in and said, yep, the, that marble is from an ancient quarry. Uh, others said the, the stuff that's on it, this calcite that's on it is what, exactly what you would expect from an old a statue like this. They checked and they had letters of who had owned it before and uh, numbers of bank accounts and all kinds of things explaining uh, where it had been sold and how much it had been sold for. It was going for $10 million, so this was pretty important to do. And yet, after all of that, uh, after paying the almost $10 million, it turned out to be a forgery. It had been sculpted in the 1980s. And the thing that kind of alerted them to it, that caused them to take a deeper uh, look into, their, um, in, into, their, into all the information that they had gathered, was that they had brought a bunch of ex- some other experts in, uh, hard historians, people who were experts in Greek sculptures, and, and right away, as they came in, they were, like, repulsed by it. A lot of them couldn't explain, couldn't explain what was wrong with it, but they knew instinctively in looking at it. One person said, it's just that, I don't know, but just statues that have been under the ground for hundreds, thousands of years just don't look like that. Another person, their first reaction, the other, the, this one person's reaction was almost like a gag reflex in looking at it, realizing that what they had paid and, and, and looking at it, realizing this is, this is not, this is not the right, right thing. Um... I wonder, uh, and I don't, I don't remember, the story is told in, in a book by Malcolm Gladwell. I can't remember if the people who paid the $10 million who did the research still have a job, um, uh, but that would be horrifying uh, to do that. Jesus told a story that was similar to this, except in his story, the forgeries are people who are professing believers. Uh, the, the experts detecting the forgery uh, is Jesus himself. And the stakes are not $10 million. The stakes are human souls. So the stakes are priceless. And in the story, uh, which comes towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it's like the next to the last passage uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. In the story, Jesus explains not everyone who professes to be a follower of his is actually. A follower of his and uh it it says that even people who profess to be a follower of his and bring as evidence that they've been follower of his that they have done miracles in his name and other things like that in his name he says some will not turn out to actually be followers of mine he's going to be repulsed by them it's a chilling it's a chilling story if you take seriously what he's saying it's a warning. It's a warning against a lot of things. Uh, if you look at the context, there's, there's warning there for us to not, not fall into uh, following false teachers he talks about there. But it's more than that. It's also a warning against self-deception. Because the, the people in the story, as they speak to Jesus and bring out their credentials as followers of his, seem to be really confident that they are followers, indeed followers, of Jesus. But Jesus says, no, you're fakes. And I, I just get away from me. So how does this happen? Well, a couple of ways that it happens, I'm sure there's an infinite number of ways that it happens, but a couple of ways that it happens, probably most often, is one is sometimes we are uh, good at being good. We're hard-charging moralists, and we're good at being good, and we're relying on our goodness to actually make us right with God and so we believe in Jesus and we are good and we think we're good uh, with God and this kind of story is, is kind of a hard story for us to get our our heads around uh, if we're a hard-charging moralist to get our heads around to really be able to to say well being good is not you know is not sufficient and yet the Bible is pretty clear about that in Ephesians 2 Uh, Verse 8 and many many other places But in Ephesians 2 verse 8 it says For it is by grace which is unmerited favor You can't earn it By grace you have been saved And it's through faith Just in case that doesn't get through It says this is not Of yourselves It is the gift Of God a gift that you have to receive It's not by works It's not by being good So that no one Can boast No one can say, I'm good with God because I'm good at being good. A second way that it happens is what uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, called cheap grace. And cheap grace can come in many forms. It can come in the idea that I'm covered because, you know, I come from a family of Christians or I've gone to church all my life or I prayed a sinner's prayer or I was baptized, um, or I joined the church and I've been a good member and I've served in the church. These kinds of ideas, or even the idea that since Jesus died for sins, uh, it doesn't really matter whether I have place my faith in him, my trust in him, um, I'm good because he died for my sins. These are all cheap grace, because it doesn't really work this way. It's not how Christianity works. Christianity is not a movement that you join that you register for. Christianity is not something that you can just sign up for. Christianity requires conversion. It requires a conversion of, of the heart, mind, of the entire life. And um and the way that conversion is spoken of in the Bible, it doesn't really use the word conversion per se. It describes it in a lot of different ways. It talks about it as a new birth. It talks about it as redemption, it talks about it as reconciliation with God. It talks about it as becoming a new creation. These are all ways of describing this conversion that that has to take place in our lives in order for us to be good with God based on what Jesus did on the cross for our sins, based on his resurrection, not our works, but our putting our trust in what he has done. So our passage today tells the story of one of the greatest and most important conversions in all of church history. It's the the conversion of the Apostle Paul. Uh, Some people say it's not really a conversion, it's a call. He didn't leave his religion. He remained as Jewish as ever, but believing that Jesus is the fulfillment. And that's true, but there is a conversion that takes place that causes him to look back at everything that he's ever believed and see it uh, in a different light. Still believing, but seeing it in a whole different light. So every conversion story in the book of Acts and every conversion story that we experience, that if you were to ask around here, well, how is it that you came to faith in Christ? Everyone is unique, and certain things happen that are unique. There's no, like, this is always the way it happens. And the Apostle Paul's is very unique. If you know the story, you're going we're going to be reading it in a moment. Uh, it's not like uh, Luke, the author of Acts, is saying this is how it happens. This is how people are converted. But in his story, you can find some of the necessary elements of conversion. And, uh, and he looks at his own life and his own writings and he says, what happened to me is what needs to happen to everybody. So there are commonalities in, in, various, in, the, in the ways that, that we are converted. So we're going to look at five necessary elements uh, for conversion today, for an authentic conversion uh, we're going to look at one of those today and uh, i'm going to extend this sermon into next week we'll look at four next week so it's vitally important for us to consider this on many different levels uh, if we are authentically followers of jesus and in an authentic relationship with him uh, this sermon i hope you don't leave here going like a little shaken by jesus story but the, you'll leave here with greater confidence in, in that relationship. Uh, if you, um, on the other hand, you know, a crowd this size uh, on any given Sunday, there are going to be people who do fit the description of that person who's going to stand before God and say, Hey, I've got the credentials. And God's going to, and Jesus is going to go, No, you, you actually. <laughs> are not my follower, you, you, you were never actually converted, you were never really actually in a relationship with me. And so hopefully, uh, some people will awaken to that and go, okay, I need, I need Christ. And then if you're exploring Christianity, you're not convinced yet, uh, this is a great passage to look at because, uh, because over the next two weeks, we're gonna be talking about what's the path to becoming a Christian. If you're exploring, this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So there's something here for all of us uh, today. So please open your Bibles to Acts chapter nine. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles in the seat rack in front of you. And the page number in those Bibles is right up here on the screen. If you have a smartphone or tablet device, uh, we are using the NIV, the new international version. Uh, If you're new with us, hopefully you picked up a new here brochure uh, today. And on the inside, there's a sermon application guide. You can get these also on your way in. Uh, but in the sermon application guide, there are some, some of the big ideas. There's some, a lot of room for notes and that sort of thing. Um, and some of the big ideas from the sermon are in there. Uh, and then there are questions for, um, uh, that are family discussion questions. Because almost every week at Five Oaks, we're following what the kids are doing. So they're looking at the same passage today. So you'll have uh, something to talk about. Uh, What you each have learned uh, as you share with your kids and ask them about what they've learned and uh, there are also reflection questions so that we can take it deeper into our lives So the story is going to open up uh, with the introduction of a man named Saul Uh, Saul is the Apostle Paul he had gone by Saul somewhere along in the book of Acts. He decides to go by uh, the name Paul and so um, Uh, Saul is a Jewish man who believes in Jesus. Saul uh, is, uh, uh, before this incident, he's introduced in just like one verse, uh, chapter or two before this, where he is overseeing the execution of one of his fellow Jews who is now a follower of Jesus. And so he is either involved with that or actually orchestrating it. And so we pick up in verse one of acts chapter nine where it says meanwhile saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the lord's disciples we're still that in that part of christian history where everyone who is a follower of jesus is a except for one exception is a jew like jesus was who believes that jesus is the fulfillment of of what 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 the whole Bible had been talking about of God's entire story. And so he went to the high priest, Saul did, and he asked for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So at this point, Christianity is not existent in the sense that no one has called a christian christian it's later in the story that it says well in antioch is where they first started calling them christians so one of the ways they describe themselves is we belong to the way and it probably was short for the way of jesus so we know from acts and from paul's letters some things about this saul character about himself we know that he was a pharisee and um Pharisee were not clergy of that day. They were what we call laymen. They, um, they were people who were just very serious about living holy lives. They believed that what the Bible says, when it says in the Old Testament, it says we are all, that all of God's people are a kingdom of priests. They took it seriously. And so they wanted to live in daily life as a priest who serves in the temple would live. And so they had all these rules to make sure that they did that. And so the rules. Were usually rules that kept them. If if that edge right there is sin, they would create their own rules. They would keep them as far away from the edge as possible. Uh, and uh, it's it's not a bad idea. We all do that to some degree in our lives. Part of the problem was they had begun to identify that. Part of the problem was that they had begun to identify that with with faith, with genuine faith. Their rules became the rules. And Anybody who was going to keep those rules are breaking God's rules and that can easily happen and it happens in Christian movements and it happens in our lives it happens in our homes sometimes uh, that we communicate uh, in that kind of a way so Paul is from Tarsus and Tarsus is a Roman city on uh, what is today the southern coast of, of, of Turkey and so I've got a map here that you're not expected to see the the names of the cities but this is Italy here and there's Rome and then you have Greece and Macedonia and here you have modern day Turkey and Syria and Israel. And so Jerusalem is right down here and Tarsus is right up here. And so it's, see on the, on the border, it was a country named C- uh, C- C- Sicilia or something like that at, at the time. And that's where he grew up. At some point, oh in the next picture I'll show you a little bit more of a close up. So, here we have Tarsus, and here we have Jerusalem. So uh, he had grown up in Tarsus, but somewhere, probably in his late teen years, maybe his early 20s, uh, he had gone to Jerusalem because he was probably a star pupil. He was probably brilliant because he went to study under, in that day, maybe the greatest, one of the greatest rabbis of that day, one of the greatest Pharisees of that day, named Gamaliel. And so, you know, Gamaliel would only have taken the, the brightest and the best, and uh, here he, he comes to become his student. And what makes it especially interesting that he was Gamaliel's student has to do, um, what makes interesting what he's doing is that he's leading this charge to hunt down fellow Jews out of the synagogues. He's going to synagogues in, like he's going to the first one in, in Syria. And he wants to go into the synagogues and he wants to find if there are any secret or professing Christians, or not Christians yet, followers of Jesus within those synagogues. And then he wants to arrest them and bring them back to Jerusalem for trial. Now, what makes it interesting is Gamaliel, earlier in Acts, has specifically counseled against that. He has specifically said, leave them alone. Let's just leave them alone. If it's not of God, it's going to fizzle. And it is, if it is of God, do you want to be standing in the way of God? So the fact that Saul is now going and hunting down these followers of Jesus means he's broken with his rabbi. That's not something that you did lightly in that day. In fact, later, we don't know at this time for sure, but later, within about 100 years, to break with your rabbi, you would have to go to a council of rabbis. And get permission based on you know, whatever the circumstances were that you felt that you needed to break with your rabbi. And there were different schools of rabbis. And Gamaliel belonged to a school that was a more moderate school. And here Saul is breaking with him. And that is just a very unusual thing, but he's doing it. That's how zealous he is. He wants to root out these heretics within Judaism. Now, being that he's that way, that he's that bold... He's the last guy any of the Jews or the Christians would believe would become a follower of, of Jesus. But God has big plans for him. So we pick up in, again in verse 3. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what to do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. So they hear a sound. They can't distinguish it as a voice. Later in a retelling of this, because this is retold two more times. Excuse me a second. (coughs) Later in a retelling of this, uh, we know they also saw the light. So they're they're speechless. Verse eight, Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Now you have to imagine in this moment, and one of the reflection questions actually asks you to do this, to spend some time just Reflecting to think about, to use your imagination to put yourself in Saul's shoes. What would it be like after you have been persecuting and going after these people to discover that Jesus is actually who he said he was? It, it would be like a, a person who had fought the, the uh, Al-Qaeda in Iraq or the Taliban, discovering that Osama bin Laden is actually doing God's will and has risen from the dead. And he's come back to talk to you. And just imagine how, how disorienting that would be. How absolutely confusing that would be. That's a, the that's a kind of thing that he would be going through at this point. In, um, in one way, um, he could get out of this. He could say, well, I'm just having a hallucination, right? You know, I, I heard a voice, but it's not a voice. But there's all these other people who have experienced something, and he has experienced it as well. And there's no natural explanation. It's this blinding, flashing light and this sound, and he has distinguished the voice in it, and the voice has told him that it's Jesus. He has no way out. He has been deadly wrong. He may have been irrevocably wrong. Just think about that. He may be thinking at this point, uh, I, I may not survive this. I have, been, I have been a murderer, I've been worse than a murderer. Uh, and God may not even let me live, but if he lets me live, it's gonna change everything. It's gonna change everything in my life. So now he's in Damascus, and the city in, in Syria, and he's blind, and he refuses to eat or drink. For three days, he hasn't drunk anything, and it's like an extreme fast, or he's just punishing himself. Um, we often think of conversion as something that happens out of a sense of emptiness when we discover the emptiness of a life without God or that conversion happens when we struggle with the brokenness of our world or the brokenness of our own lives. And we just struggle with that long enough, and then we, we hear the message of Jesus and how he wants to bring wholeness to our lives, and so we respond to that. Sometimes conversion comes out of immense guilt. It's been like we know we have done wrong, and we've hurt people, and we have brought ill repute to God, and so we feel guilt, and God offers forgiveness. And, or, or sometimes it's just something is missing in our lives and uh, you know augustine said it's like there's a hole a void there and and it needs god and so all these reasons are reasons why sometimes we come to the point where we eventually even after fighting it for a long time we receive christ and the reality is that many times that's how it works god works in us specifically in that way but that is not paul's story it's not saul's story he, he's not experiencing any of those things This is how he describes who he was and how he thought before that event. It's in Philippians chapter 3. This is from one of his letters. He says, If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, giving his credentials, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, a Pharisee, the, the most serious out there. As for zeal, Okay, I'm not just a Pharisee who believes in the law. I live it, persecuting the church. As for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. That was him. That's who he was leading up to this. But Paul wasn't struggling. There's no sense that he was unhappy, that he had this hold. What you discover is that Saul was living his dream. He was serving God all out with the okay from the high priest. He's doing exactly what God has called him to do. Now, it's something like an article uh, that I came across um, where this, this lady, Nicole Cliff, tells her story of coming to faith in Christ in spite of the fact she says that I was very content. It's <laughs> was very content. In fact, this is the title of her article. It's called How God Messed Up My Happy Atheist Life. So she says she became a Christian in 2015. She's telling her story. After what she called a pleasant adult life of firm atheism. She says, the idea of a benign deity who created and loved us was obviously nonsense. And all that awaited us beyond the grave was joyful oblivion. She's not even afraid of dying. It's like, it would be great to just, ooh, just everything is done. I had no untapped, unanswered yearnings. I was happy, I was content. But then this is how she describes what happened to her, she says, first, I was worried about my child. One time I said, be with me, to an empty room, it was embarrassing. I didn't know why I said it or to whom, I brushed it off, I moved on, the situation resolved itself. I didn't think about it again. Second, I came across John Ordberg's obituary for philosopher Dallas Willard. So." John Ortberg is a pastor and a prolific writer, and, and he is, um, by his own admission, he says, I'm, I'm like, uh, Dallas Willard's a philosopher, uh, and uh, was it the philosopher, Christian philosopher. And Willard is hard to kind of follow sometimes, uh, and so John Ortberg always called himself, he's kind of like, I, I'm Dallas Willard for dummies. written by a dummy. <laughs> Okay, so that's, that's basically, okay, so John Ortberg writes this obituary in Christianity Today magazine. And she reads it because she says, John's daughters are dear friends. John Orberg's daughters are dear friends. And they have always struck me as sweetly deluded in their evangelical faith. So I read the article. In the obituary, John Ortberg said that somebody once asked Dallas if he believed in total depravity. It's a, it's a doctrine of scripture. He says, I believe in sufficient depravity. I believe that every human being is sufficiently depraved. There's enough sin in our life that when we get to heaven, no one will be able to say, I merited this. A few minutes into reading the piece, I burst into tears. Later that day, I burst into tears again. And the next day, while brushing my teeth, while falling asleep, while in the shower, while feeding my kids, I would burst into tears. So she has, she's not unhappy. <laughs> she's not got these secret yearnings or anything like that. She's just crying all the time. She decided to read some Christian books. She said, I kept crying every time I'd read these books. And then I emailed a friend and said, I want to talk about Jesus. And then she writes this. She says, but about an hour before our call, I knew I believed in God. Worse, I was a Christian. <laughs> I was crying constantly while thinking about Jesus because I'd begun to believe that Jesus really was who he said he was. So when my friend called, I told her awkwardly that I wanted to have a relationship with God and we prayed. Since then, I've been dunked by a pastor in the Pacific Ocean while shivering in a too-small wetsuit. I have sung Be Thou My Vision and celebrated communion on a beach while weirded-out Californians tiptoed around me. I go to church, I pray. Even after accepting Christ, I continue to cry a lot. I read a news article that literally sank me to my knees at how broken our world is and yet how stubbornly resilient and joyful we can be in the face of that brokenness. My Christian conversion has granted me no simplicity. It has complicated all of my relationships, changed how I feel about money, messed up my public persona. Obviously, it's been very beautiful. (laughs) Okay, so not quite as sudden as Paul's, but the same basic idea. Here's someone who isn't searching who isn't struggling. It's like God is, 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 is going after her and eventually gets her. And I think this happens a lot, uh, a lot more often I think, if we shared our stories with other people here. I don't know if it's the majority, but I think it happens a lot. Uh, it's it's kind of my story, because one day I was a happy kid who knew nothing about Jesus. Almost literally nothing. I mean, I think what I, I don't, th- I don't know that I knew anything. <laughs> and the next day i was a follower of jesus after learning about him there was nothing that that kind of precipitated it except hearing hearing the message and then my life totally changed god initiates conversion in fact there's a whole stream of teaching in the bible that says everything is initiated by god are any of us who are followers of jesus It has been initiated by God. He has awakened even faith in us. We can't even take credit for the faith that we have. Paul described this whole scene in Acts um, a little bit later in that chapter, Philippians chapter three. This this could be just his quick summary of what happened to him. He says, Christ Jesus took hold of me. Six words, Christ Jesus took hold of me. It would be weird in some ways to hear uh, the Apostle Paul as he tells his own story, to hear him sing the song, the old song, I have decided to follow Jesus. Because it's like there was no decision. It was like, it, it, it was like um, there was no searching. There was nothing on his part. It was just Jesus grasping him. Now, there was a decision. We're gonna see that, especially next week. There is a decision in following Jesus. But, but his, what comes over him is this sense that God took hold of me. So God, did God take hold of you? Maybe God is trying to take hold of you. Even now, and you're resisting him, you're pushing him away. Is God seeking to take hold of you? Will you respond? So we continue in verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called, him to him, called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Now, interestingly, if you go to Google Earth and you put down State Street, this is where it's going to take you because the Eastern Gate Street is Straight Street. And in that part of the world, they're not like in the United States with all the land that we have and where we keep expanding like you know some of you have moved into homes that have just expanded this area is like the homes are there and that's it. And this is still the Jewish quarter today. Um, if you go to Google Earth, you can you can see it. And it's called Eastern Gate Street because it's an ancient gate right over right over here. And so probably somewhere right along here Paul is at Judas's house, this, this, this um, unfortunately named man, Judas. And, uh, and he's had this, this vision of Ananias coming. So verse 13, Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. In other words, I know you're God. What are you sure? <laughs> I mean, do you, do you know what you're asking? In verse 15, but the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and to their kings and to the people of Israel. In other words, this guy is going to be a big thing. He's going to be a big thing. Um and then jesus adds and i will show him how much he must suffer for my name <laughs> so no bait and switch here no you know accept jesus and your life will be great and everything will be wonderful which we tend to kind of go towards um but this reflects exactly what jesus said in his gospel come follow me it'll make an eternal difference in your life and get ready to suffer in my name verse 17. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, which are beautiful words, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, let's be clear, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, the Lord has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up. was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Here you have the conversion of the Apostle Paul and beginning of a journey of the greatest missionary that ever lived. 25%, almost 25% of our New Testament is written by this murderer who was fighting Jesus and Jesus took hold of him. So what are the five necessary elements of an authentic Christian conversion? Uh, the one that we're looking at today is one that we've already explored, so I'm not going to go deeply into it because we've been talking about it all along. It's a personal encounter with Jesus, a personal encounter with Jesus. Now, I don't know if you've ever met someone who the force of their personality just kind of overwhelmed you, not, not in a negative way. The force of their personality just like drew you in. I think in my life, it was through a, a series of events and somebody who from our church who uh, knew uh, Rick Warren and invited me to a dinner and for about two hours I had a conversation with Rick Warren who is like the author of one of the greatest selling books of all time The Purpose Driven Life and he was like that it was that kind of experience to leave that was like oh wow you know because of his vision and everything there's um, a story that Mark Galley um, uh, tells about a r- reporter from back in the early 20th century who had a conversation a, conversation with Theodore Roosevelt who was also you know the kind of person that was bigger than life and so this is how he described his personality uh, or, or his encounter he says I have never known such a man as he and never shall again he overcame me and in an hour or two that we spent that day at lunch he poured into my heart such vision such ideals such hopes such a new attitude toward life and patriotism and the meaning of things as I have never dreamed men had After that, I was his man. In an authentic conversion, you have an encounter with Jesus that changes everything. Now, that encounter is not uh, experiencing a blinding light and hearing a voice (laughs) type of thing. that, That was Paul's experience. Paul had an experience of a literal Light and a voice, the voice of Jesus speaking to him. He would later describe it as a post-resurrection appearance calling him into apostleship, a unique thing that nobody else had. All right, But when he talked about conversion, here's one of the things he said. So in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, he said, for God who said, now he's talking about for everybody, let light shine out of the darkness, which he said in Genesis, he, that God, made His light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. We who are followers of Christ have had an encounter with Jesus, uh, and it changes everything. Uh, In that moment, in that personal encounter, we recognize who Jesus is and who Jesus was. We recognize his love. We recognize his grace toward us. Even though we recognize in that moment of that encounter that we don't deserve his grace. We don't deserve his love, his sacrifice for our sins, his authority. We recognize his authority over our lives as our creator and as the ruler of the universe. You have a personal encounter with Jesus. But it doesn't end there. The reality is that there were people who had personal encounters with Jesus who would not say, He's, I'm his man. <laughs> I mean, you had Judas who betrayed him, one of the disciples. You had the religious leaders, many of them who had Jesus to their home, who had extensive conversations with him, who helped and conspired to have Jesus crucified, to have him killed by the Roman authorities. So. Not everyone who has a personal encounter with Jesus has what the response that makes for a genuine, a genuine conversion. So the second thing that happens, I'm not going to go into it. I just want to give you a preview of next week. The second thing that has to happen is a humble surrender to God. A humble surrender to God. And we're going to look at this passage and some other passages next week. Flowing from that humble surrender with God... Several other things happen in a genuine conversion. They don't happen like all at once. These are the things that that begin to happen, a reevaluation of everything in light of Christ. You can't have an encounter with Jesus and a humble surrender without looking back at life and going, okay, the way that I think, the way that I live, where my life has been going has to be completely reevaluated. There's a sense of an inclusion into another family, brother Saul, brother Saul. And there's a redefined purpose in life because Paul was gonna be a big deal. But every single one of us have a mission for God in our daily lives. Not one of us who have an encounter with Jesus walk away from it without a commission to our life. So we're gonna look at those next week. This week, just that question, is God shining his light into your life? Have you responded with a humble surrender of putting your trust in him and no longer putting your trust in yourself are you willing to receive the forgiveness that he gives you may not recognize that you needed forgiveness but now recognizing that jesus died for your sins you needed forgiveness that's what it took to get you right with god if you're there if maybe you've been a professing christian but in your heart you've never had that encounter with jesus let today be the day when you do that as you respond to god's word let's pray